Good morning. Ohayou gozaimasu. Welcome to Calvary Chapel Iwakuni. Great to be here with you guys as we gather here just to worship the Lord and uh, enjoy just a, a good time uh, together as a family, as uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, but also just as we get to s- uh, seek our Heavenly Father and spend time with Him. So uh, great to be here with you guys. Today we're going to look to finish up chapter 8 of Luke's Gospel as we cover the final 17 verses of the chapter. I've entitled our study this morning, Frantic Faith. As uh, we read our portion of Scripture this morning, I think you'll see why I chose that title for our time together. Will you all uh, please stand in honor of God and His Word as we read through our text this morning. Hopefully you have your Bibles opened up, ready to follow along, Luke chapter 8. I'm going to be reading from verse 40 all the way down to verse 56 and the conclusion of the chapter, okay? Everyone there? Luke 8? Nod your head? All right, great, awesome. Let's listen to what the Lord has for us today through the Gospel of Luke. Luke writes in verse 40, stating the following. So it was, when Jesus returned, that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Now a woman, having a flow of blood for twelve years, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment. And immediately her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you, and you say, Who touched me? But Jesus said, Somebody touched me, for I perceive power going out from me. Now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Do not be afraid. Only believe, and she will be made well. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, Do not weep, she's not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. But he put them all outside, took her by the hand, and called, saying, Little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately, and he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather here in this place to freely uh, open your word, to study your word, Lord, to allow your word to do that work you desire to do uh, in each and every one of us this morning. And Lord, I do hope I do pray that each and every one of us here this morning comes with that expectation that you're going to speak, that you're going to move, and that you're going to work in our hearts and lives. 
give to us a great expectation and anticipation. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Now, if you were with us last week, uh, you may recall how the power and authority of Jesus was on full display as he taught about overcoming fear through faith. We began last week's study by looking at an account involving the disciples setting sail across the Sea of Galilee during the night. As they crossed the Sea of Galilee, a storm arose and began to beat against the boat that they were in. The winds blew, the waves crashed, and the boat began filling with water. And the disciples, they feared for their lives. They thought that they were going to perish out on the sea that night. And while all of that was going on, you may recall Jesus was sound asleep uh, in the back of the boat. Okay? And uh, uh, the disciples, they panicked. They came to Jesus, waking him up and exclaiming, Master, Master, we are perishing. And it was at that time that Jesus arose and he displayed his power and authority over the natural world. He got up and he rebuked the wind and the raging of the water and they ceased and there was a great calm that resulted the disciples feared exceedingly as they considered the power and authority jesus displayed over the physical natural world then we turned our attention to what happened once they arrived safely to the other side of the sea of galilee in the land of the gatherings again jesus's power and authority was on display but this time in a different realm in a spiritual realm there in the land of the gatherings, they encountered a different form of opposition. Instead of battling the physical elements of the natural world, they encountered a demonic force from the spiritual realm. A demon-possessed man came against Jesus and his disciples as soon as they stepped foot on the shores of that land. And there the disciples witnessed Jesus' power and authority over the spiritual realm as Jesus commanded the evil spirits within the man to come out of him and to enter into a herd of swine. The people of the surrounding region, they came out, they saw the result of Jesus' power and authority over the spiritual, over the supernatural, and they responded in fear as well. But they requested that Jesus leave their land, and they wanted nothing to do with him. And, and this is where our text this morning picks back up. Jesus and his disciples, they've obliged the request of the people of the gatherings. They have departed from the region. They've crossed back over the Sea of Galilee, presumably back to their home port of Capernaum. And as we go through this morning's portion of Scripture, we're going to see Jesus' power and authority on display once again. This time in two very serious elements of life. Jesus will show his power and authority over death. And then Jesus will show his power and authority over disease. Death and disease are elements that humans have fought against ever since the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden. As a result of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, death and disease have come and wreaked havoc over mankind. And in our text today, we're going to see how Jesus has power and authority over each of these as well. And so we'll see all of this in response to the faith of two very different people in two very different situations, but both coming to Jesus in great desperation and showing faith in him to overcome these enemies 
of humanity. So let's take a look at our opening verse once again, verse 40, just to kind of start us back off. It says, So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. We'll pause right there. This opening verse shows the beginning of what will be many contrasts in our text this morning. Recall how last week Jesus had an entire uh, city of people come out against him and ask him to depart from their region. Here we see in our opening verse quite the opposite. Luke describes for us another multitude, but this one being very excited to see him. Uh, They're there to welcome him back to their shores. It's amazing to consider the wide type of types of responses that Jesus stirred within various peoples. Some wanted nothing to do with him. They didn't want to have any part of him. While at the same time, based upon the very similar actions by Jesus, a whole multitude of people are excited to see Jesus and they want him to do everything for them. And I think it just goes to show how, how fickle and how unpredictable we can be as people. Jesus' display of power over the physical and spiritual realms created in some a desire to have nothing to do with him, while at the same time created in others a desire for Jesus to do everything for them. And so we see this contrast even right at the very beginning. Let's continue in our text. We'll read about one particular individual and the frantic faith he displayed towards Jesus. Read verses 41 and the first part of 42. It says, And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. We'll stop right there. We are introduced to a man who came from the midst of the crowd by the name of Jairus. And Luke gives us a few details about Jairus that are important for us to note as we consider this account. And the first thing that we note is that Jairus was one of the rulers of this synagogue. This was an official office within uh, a local Jewish synagogue. Uh, The ruler of the synagogue was one of the elders in a local synagogue who was chosen or appointed to this office. Based upon different readings from the New Testament scriptures, it would appear that some of the local synagogues may have had multiple people serve in this sort of capacity. Now, as ruler of the synagogue, Jairus would be responsible for governing over the affairs of the local synagogue. Uh, He was in charge of preserving order within the services, and he was in charge of selecting uh, and inviting persons, uh, rabbis, to come and read and to speak in the assembly. Though we are not specifically told within the scriptures here, I do believe that it is safe to infer that Jairus was a very well-respected religious man. Something that would be expected from a man in his position as a ruler of the synagogue. I believe it is also safe to infer that he was a man of great means. Based upon some of the details we read uh, and based upon the uh, statues, excuse me, the status he had as ruler of the synagogue, it's very likely that he was a man of wealth. We're told that he had an only daughter that was 12 years old, and she was in his house sick. In fact, we're told that she was dying. For 12 years, this man's life was filled with joy and happiness from the presence of this little girl, but all of that was changing. The little girl that had brought such joy and happiness to his life was having her life taken from her. 
And I think it's safe to assume the emotional state of Jairus. Jairus is a man of desperation. He is desperate for help. He's worried that the bundle of joy that he has cared for over the last 12 years is being ripped from his hands. You know, I do believe one of the easiest ways to get to the heart of man is, is through his children. We can't stand to see our children suffering. We can't sa- stand to see our children in pain and, and not be able to do anything about it. And I know for some of you parents, you know that feeling. And we can understand the heart of Jairus in this moment, the, the desperation he must feel over the thought of, of losing his one and only child. Jairus made his way through the great multitude seeking out Jesus. And verse 41 tells us that when he came to Jesus, he fell down at his feet, begging him to come to his house. Matthew's parallel account of this event tells us that Jairus came and worshipped him. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. You know, you may recall from uh, last week, the demon-possessed man, he did a similar Just like the demon-possessed man, Jairus came and fell at Jesus' feet, but his intentions and his motives were completely different. You see, Jairus came out of desperation, and he came humbly before Jesus. The demons forced their possessed body to the ground out of great fear over what Jesus may do to them, but Jairus came with great hope in what Jesus may do for him. A, a, A big difference. Jairus worshipped Jesus, and he humbly submitted himself to the Lord. And I think this is significant. I have no doubt whatsoever that Jairus had leaned upon his own religious duties and his own religious acts to try and deliver his daughter from her sickness and himself from the situation that he was in. But Jairus' religion was not working. He's now at a point of desperation. He's frantic. He needs someone to intervene. His religion was not working. He came and he humbly submitted himself to Jesus. He realized that the things he was trying, they weren't working. And that he needed Jesus to enter into his life and take control. He was a man of authority, but he knew that his authority was powerless in this situation. He needed a greater authority to take over, and so he came and he humbled himself before Jesus, begging him to intervene. And I think we learn a valuable lesson here, the first one that we want to note, that religion and religious acts, they are powerless, okay? Jairus didn't need religion. He needed Jesus Christ. There's a big difference between religion and a relationship with Jesus Christ. Religion is man's attempt to reach God. Religion teaches man that they can uh, reach a higher power or they can reach a a certain state of being through man-made efforts. But a relationship with God is not based upon man's efforts, but God's. God reaches down to us. Okay, and he stirs in our hearts a desire to be with him, and he creates a way for that to happen. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the way. He came to create a way for us to enter into a personal relationship with God. Listen, church family, religion will never save us, but a relationship with Jesus Christ will. 
Jairus is coming to this understanding. His religion is falling short, and he realizes his need for Jesus to come into his life. When Jairus fell at Jesus' feet, he begged him earnestly to come to his house. In Mark's gospel, we're told that he requested that Jesus come and lay his hands on her that she may be healed and that she would live. Jairus made a bold proclamation of faith. He believed that if Jesus would simply place his hands upon his daughter, that she would be healed and she would live. He showed faith and confidence in Jesus Christ to deliver his daughter, to save her life. Well, let's look at how Jesus responded. Very simply, at the very end of the rest of verse 42, it says, But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Jesus responded to Jairus' frantic faith, and he went with him. Some people, you know, they look at Jairus, and they think to themselves that he really didn't show a great amount of faith. They suggest that Jairus was limiting Jesus by believing that Jesus had to actually be there and to actually touch his daughter in order for her to be healed. And, and the people who think this way, they, they cite the great faith of the Roman centurion. We read about him already before, uh, that Jesus marveled at his faith. If you guys remember, uh, the centurion, he believed that Jesus could just say the word and the healing would be brought. And, and because Jairus believed that Jesus needed to actually touch his daughter, well, they, they frown upon his faith. But let me note something here. Jesus didn't frown upon Jairus' faith or even correct him for not having enough faith. He responded to the faith that Jairus showed. The scriptures teach us that we have all been given a certain measure of faith. Okay, Romans chapter 12, verse 3 mentions it. And it isn't so much the amount of faith that we have, We don't have to have great faith in order for God to respond to us. Jesus said if we have faith as a mustard seed, okay, that's that's something tiny, okay, something small. If we have mustard seed type faith, we can say to the mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and Jesus says it would obey you. We err when we think that in order for God to respond to us, we have to show great faith that we have to take great steps of faith in order to get God to move in our lives. Listen, church family, that simply is not true. God responds to our faith, period. Whether it be little, whether it, it be great, the important thing is not how much faith we have, but rather who or what we are placing our faith in. God wants us to place whatever amount of faith we have, whether it be great or little, into Him that we would trust the Lord and place our faith and hope in Him alone. And listen, God will respond to that type of faith, whether we think it's small or whether we think it great. Really, any time we place any amount of faith in Jesus, it is great faith because He is a great God. Though Jairus didn't have the faith of the centurion, He still showed faith in Christ, and Jesus responded to that faith and went with him. So Jesus went with Jairus, but unfortunately, so did the great multitude. Verse 42 tells us that though Jesus had decided to go with Jairus, the great multitude still followed after Jesus, and they thronged him. That word thronged, it carries with it the idea of being pressed together from every side. 
Uh, in fact, the Greek word translated as thronged that Luke used is a word that means to suffocate or to choke. It, it paints a very vivid picture of the scene before us. The crowd is, is pushing in all around Jesus, and, and though he has agreed to go with Jairus, the crowd isn't allowing him to move very quickly. They are practically suffocating him. He's barely even able to move as he gets pushed uh, in and uh, all around uh, himself. And then from the midst of this crowd, pressing in all around him, comes another one who was frantic and desperate to come and see Jesus. We're going to put Jairus' story on pause. We're going to come back to it after looking at this new individual introduced to us in verses 43 and 44. Let's read. It says, Now a woman, having a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. Here we are introduced to a nameless woman that had a problem regarding a flow of blood for 12 years. And Luke, as he did with Jairus, he gives us some important details surrounding her situation. Specifically, we're told that this woman has gone to see several different physicians, okay, several different medical doctors about her condition, but that they were unable to assist her. Okay? In fact, in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 5, verse 26, it tells us that the doctors made things worse, and she actually suffered many things from many different physicians. We're also told that she spent every bit of money that she had on trying to get better, but to no avail. And so we know that this woman, she is poor. She has nothing to her name. The fact that this woman's medical issue revolved around a flow of blood is extremely significant. Okay? According to Old Testament law, a woman who has a discharge of blood is considered to be unclean. Leviticus 15 is very detailed in explaining that if a woman has a discharge of blood from her body, that she shall be set apart seven days and be considered unclean. And anything or anyone that touches her will be considered unclean as well. In fact, Leviticus 15 details how if anything she laid on or sat on during her time of discharge was touched by anyone else, that they too would be unclean. So not only if you touched her, but if you touched anything that she she touched, basically, you would be considered unclean. This was the law concerning women during their customary time of impurity, okay, during their monthly menstrual cycle. However, Leviticus also specifically addressed the issue of a woman who has an extended amount of time with a blood discharge. Leviticus chapter 15, verse 25 states that if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, other than at her customary time of impurity, that all the days of her discharge, she shall be considered the same as when she had her customary time of impurity. She shall be unclean. Again, this is significant because it informs us of the type of life this woman has lived for the past 12 years. For 12 years, this woman has been deemed unclean. As an unclean person, she would be prohibited from coming to worship the Lord. The law did not permit an unclean person to enter into the temple to worship or even into a local synagogue to worship. 
she also would be ostracized in public. She would become a captive to her own dwelling place. Going outside into the public would put any who touch her or bump into her at risk of being deemed unclean themselves. If she was married, the law would not permit her husband to touch her. If she had children, the same would be true. She'd not be able to properly care for them as a mother because anything she touched would be considered unclean. This woman's life, as she knew it before this issue was over, excuse me, before this issue was over, okay, and for 12 years she lived in spiritual darkness and in despair and in great misery. We can understand the desperation this woman is in. She has tried everything she knows to do. She's gone to countless doctors, spent all of her livelihood. She's lived as an outcast for 12 years and seems to have no hope of ever being healed. But all of that changed the day Jesus came into town. In Mark's gospel, we're told in Mark 5.27 that this woman heard about Jesus. We aren't told specifically what she heard, but obviously she heard enough to cause her to do something desperate, to take a step of faith and see what would happen. She came and she pushed her way through the crowd so that she could touch the border of Jesus's garment. Matthew's parallel account tells us why she wanted to touch Jesus's garment. In Matthew 9, 21, evidently this woman thought to herself, if I if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. Just like Jairus, who realized that he needed something more than religion, he needed a relationship. This woman came to the realization that she needed more than what she could provide in and of herself. She had tried everything possible in her own means. She went to see as many doctors as she could. She spent all the money that she could, but she came to the understanding that all of her efforts weren't enough to get her out of the desperate situation she was in. She realized her need to come to Jesus, that she was insufficient to save herself. She had finally come to the end of herself and found out that the answer wasn't going to be found in her, but it was going to be found in Jesus Christ. Listen, the scriptures attest that our sufficiency is in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 state, And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Our hope for salvation is not found in us. Our hope, our sufficiency is in Jesus Christ alone. We must realize that our own efforts, listen, they will never be sufficient enough to save us. They will never be sufficient enough to deliver us. We need the Lord. We need Jesus Christ. This woman has come to this understanding, and she's acting upon it. She's coming to Jesus. And just like Jairus, she too acted upon the faith that she had. Now again, some may ridicule her faith. Some may think she needed to be more bold in her faith, that she should have come out openly seeking God rather than trying to be discreet about it that she was superstitious to believe touching clothing would heal her. But I want you to note again, Jesus does not ridicule her faith. She acted upon the faith she had, and God honored that. We're told that as she reached out and touched the border of Jesus' garment, that immediately her flow of blood stopped. In healing this woman, Jesus displayed his power 
and authority over disease. Mark's gospel described this woman's condition as an affliction. The Greek word for affliction, it speaks of a scourge, uh, meaning a disease or a plague. So Jesus, he has the power and authority to overcome disease, something that came as a result of the fall of man from the Garden of Eden. And so Jesus demonstrates his power here. Let's continue on. We'll read about Jesus' response to this woman in verse 45 through 47. It says, and Jesus said to her, excuse me, Jesus said, who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you, and you say, Who touched me? But Jesus said, Somebody touched me, for I perceive power going out from me. Now the, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came, trembling, and falling down before him, she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. Jesus Listen, he knew he had healed this woman. The whole questioning about who touched him was his way of seeking out this woman and bringing her faith to the attention of the multitude around them. The people are pushing in all around him. Countless numbers of people are touching him, but only one touched him in such a way that expressed her faith in him. When Jesus said, who touched me? You know, the disciples, they thought he must be joking. What do you mean, who touched you? Right? I mean, everyone's touching you. We're getting smashed here, Jesus. You know, we're getting choked out. Everyone is touching you. Why would you ask such a silly question? But Jesus told them how he knew someone touched him because he perceived power going out from him. Again, Jesus knew power had left him. He was aware of what had happened. The woman came to Jesus with fear and trembling. She fell down before him and confessed to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she had been healed immediately. Listen, this woman was scared. She's unclean. Okay? And for her to push her way through a crowd and, and to reach out and touch Jesus' clothes was an act that would, put s- would be seen, let's just say, with much scorn from the public eye. Okay? If someone that's unclean pushes through and touches you and you, you know, now you're ceremonially unclean, okay? her presence would not be very welcome. And so we understand her fear. And I, and I understand and I'm confident this, that her situation was why she was trembling. She was ashamed of her condition. She didn't want to be exposed. And so she tried to do things discreetly, quietly, without having any attention to herself or, or her condition. But she did not let her fears of what others may say or what others may think about her keep her from ultimately coming to Jesus and falling before him in complete surrender and worship. This woman could have tried to continue to hide. Okay, at the beginning there it says that when all denied it, okay, so there's a certain sense that everyone's like, God, oh, no one touched you, you know. And, and she could have just played, you know, as one of the multitudes, oh, you know, I have no idea what you're talking about. But she didn't do that. She came forth. She shared the reason why she did what she did. And I believe there's another valuable lesson for us to learn here. Sometimes, you know, we think that we can come to Jesus and still try to hide things from him. We think that we can, you know, pull a fast one on the Lord and and maybe get away with things. We come to Jesus and we pretend that everything's going great, but in reality, we're trying to hide things from him. There are areas of our life that God wants to work in, but we try to hide it from him and only end up hurting ourselves when we live that way. Listen, it's foolishness, utter foolishness to think 
that we can hide things from Jesus. He knows and he sees all. Hebrews 4.13 declares, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You're not going to fool Jesus. He sees it all. You may fool me, and you may fool your friends, and you may even fool loved ones close to you, but you're not fooling the Lord. And he's the one that you're going to give an account to. So learn from this woman. Realize that there is no hiding from the presence of the Lord. Come, fall at his feet. Worship him. Confess all that you have done. I'll let you in on a secret. Not a secret. He already knows. He already knows. Why hide it? Humble yourself. Confess. Surrender. Verse 48 records Jesus' response. And he said to her daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Jesus acknowledged her faith. He didn't ridicule her or blast her and say, oh, it's pretty superstitious of you or you should have been more bold. He didn't do that. He responded to the faith she had and healed her completely. Now, According to the thinking of the day, when this unclean woman touched Jesus, it would make him unclean, but that isn't what happened. Instead of Jesus becoming unclean, the woman was made clean and whole. And the same happens to us in our lives, you guys. When we come to Jesus with all of our sin and all of our uncleanness and we lay our sin upon him, it doesn't make him dirty. It doesn't make him a sinner. He takes our sin from us and he makes us clean just like he did for this woman. Now, some people think that they are too dirty to come to Jesus. I've talked to people like that before. You know, I'm too dirty. You know, I've done too much. They think they're too far gone that Jesus' touch can't bring restoration. We need not worry that our sin is too great. Listen, God's love is greater. I guarantee it. Now it's time to get back to Jairus and his situation. Remember that Jairus' daughter is, is dying. When he first approached Jesus, it was with the sense of urgency. Jesus needed to come quickly. She was about to die. But the crowd prevented Jesus from moving fast. The actions of this unknown woman created even more delay. So let's read and see what happened next. In verse 49, it says, While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. I imagine in my own eyes the great disappointment and dread Jairus must have felt when he heard these words come from a messenger sent out from his house. His daughter had died. He was not fast enough. He was unable to get Jesus to his daughter in time. And I imagine a a flood of emotions probably struck him all at once. Obviously, just the fear and anguish of of losing his daughter, sorrow at his own inabilities, perhaps anger towards the crowd who slowed him down, jealousy towards the woman who was healed. I imagine he's feeling all of this and then some. Let's read how Jesus responds in verse 50, though. It says, but when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, do not be afraid. Only believe and she will be made well. Jesus, having heard the messenger from Jairus' house and having seen, no doubt, the expression, the emotion of Jairus, exhorted him in two things. 
Jesus told Jairus, do not be afraid. Obviously, Jairus was afraid, okay? Or else Jesus wouldn't have commanded him to not be afraid. Jairus was afraid it was too late. He was afraid his actions weren't enough to save his daughter. He was afraid that the love of his life, his one and only child, his little precious daughter, was gone. But Jesus encouraged him by saying, do not be afraid. Fear is the enemy of faith. Jairus has faith. He believed Jesus could heal his daughter, but fear was gripping at his heart. And Jesus addressed that fear by saying, do not be afraid. Jesus then told him, only believe and she will be made well. These words of Jesus, they are actually recorded in the present imperative, which means that they could be understood as keep on believing. This was a command that Jesus was giving to Jairus. Jairus had already exercised faith in coming to Jesus. Jesus encourages him here to keep on believing. He looks to Jairus, he says, Jairus, don't stop believing, okay? I know what they just said, but don't give up hope on me. You keep believing, and you trust in me. Don't give up hope. And I look at that, and I think, what a great exhortation for us as well. When fear begins to grip our heart, church family, don't let it keep us from continuing to believe in the promises of God. Listen, when... Not if, okay, but when. When bad news comes, may our faith continue to remain upon Jesus and his word. Because bad news will come. If you're not in the middle of a a difficult situation right now, just give it a little bit of time. It will come. And when that news comes, whatever it may be, we need to be decided in our heart that we will not fear, but that we will continue to believe and we will continue to trust in the work that God is doing in our hearts and in our lives. Let's continue. Verse 51, it says, When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, Do not weep. She's not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him knowing that she was dead. We'll pause right here. Jesus was able to break free from the crowd. He permitted no one to come follow except Peter, James, and John, uh, along with Jairus and his wife. As they arrived, there were a multitude of people weeping and wailing loudly over the death of Jairus' daughter. Uh, We do understand, we've looked at this before, that part of the Jewish custom for a death was to have professional mourners who would be uh, summoned to come and play musical instruments. They would weep loudly and they would lead their family in lamenting uh, the loss of a, of a loved one. And I do think that we get the idea that these people weeping and wailing are more than likely, you know, these professional mourners uh, based upon how quickly they're able to change their countenance, okay? One minute they're weeping and wailing loudly and then the next minute they're ridiculing Jesus, you know? So you would think like, hey, oh, it's so horrible. And he says, hey, why are you doing that? She's sleeping. And they're like, well, you know, and they get all mad and, and start ridiculing Jesus. Probably professional mourners. <laughs> they ridiculed Jesus because he said, do not weep. She's not dead, but sleeping. And uh, sometimes, the, you know, people look at this and they wonder and, 
And it's interesting to consider, was this girl dead or, or was she not dead? Was she just sleeping? Was she sick? They thought she was dead, but she really wasn't. Let me uh, just settle the case here for you guys, okay? Everyone there knew that she had died. Jesus said she's not dead, she's sleeping. To sleep, listen, it was a euphemism for death that was used uh, oftentimes for believers. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul uses the word sleep to describe the death of Christians, 1 Corinthians 15, 51. And in John's gospel, Jesus spoke similarly regarding Lazarus. If you're familiar with uh, the account of Lazarus, Lazarus, excuse me, uh, he spoke to his disciples saying, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. And then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. <laughs> However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Okay, so sometimes the disciples didn't get it and Jesus was trying to you know, use euphemisms, but sometimes he just had to come out and say it. Hey, Lazarus is dead, guys, um, and, and I think it's safe to conclude in this situation, this, this girl is, is dead, okay? Um, but Jesus simply referred to her as sleeping because he knew that he, what he was about to do and that her death would not last long. So she's, she's definitely dead, okay? Verse 54 says, But he put them all outside, took her by the hand, and called, saying, Little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately, and he commanded that she be given something to eat, and her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Jesus put all of those who ridiculed him outside. He didn't want anything to do with those who would not believe his word. He didn't want their disbelief, their ridicule, to impact the faith of Jairus and his mother. Jesus took the child by the hand and said, Little girl, arise. And immediately her spirit returned to her, and the girl arose from her deathbed. And Jesus told them to get her something to eat. Here we see Jesus display his power and uh, his authority even over death. He was able to command this girl to come back to life and to defeat death. Of course, this was just a shadow of what was to come when Jesus Christ would go to the cross of Calvary himself. And he would die for the sins of all humanity. He would be buried in a tomb three days and then rise again back to life, showing his ultimate authority over sin and death. We're told that her parents were astonished, but that he charged them not to tell anyone about it. And we've seen Jesus do this before as well, telling people not to share with others some of the things he'd done for them. We are constantly reminded that Jesus is operating upon a divine timeline. The uproar that would have come as a result of word spreading that Jesus had power to raise the dead back to life would have hindered the work that he was sent by the Father to complete. I mean, think about the throngs, uh, the multitude thronging him now uh, based upon some healings. Imagine what that multitude would be like if all of a sudden it's like, oh, he can raise people from the dead as well. Um, he wouldn't be able to go or do anything, okay? Um, and so he told Jairus, and the others not to share this knowledge with other people. You know, I look at this account, and I see so many things that are contrasted, you know, so many uh, very different things. Uh, I see two events, and, and I note the differences and, and, the, and the similarities, and I, and I find it odd. I, and I think God is purposely giving us the details of this event for a reason, okay? 
As we look at these details, I want you to note these things, okay? Jairus was a man who had enjoyed 12 years of joy and happiness from the life of his daughter. The woman suffered for 12 years under the condemnation of a disease that made her unclean. Jairus was a man of influence, a man well-respected. The woman was an outcast. We don't even know her name. Jairus was a man of great wealth. The woman had spent all her livelihood trying to find a cure for her disease. She had nothing. Jairus was the ruler of a synagogue. This woman wasn't even permitted to enter into a synagogue. Jairus, he came openly and boldly. The woman came quietly and discreetly. Jesus healed Jairus' daughter in privacy, but he called the woman to come out publicly. Both Jairus and the woman realized their need to come to Jesus. Both Jairus and the woman came with great desperation. Both Jairus and the woman had Jesus respond to their faith, the faith that they had. What are we to make of all this? Let me suggest this to you. I think this is what we can make of all this. That God is free to work however he sees fit. Okay? He is in control. We cannot put him in a box and say only God works this way or only God works that way. Even though these situations were so different, God still worked in both these situations to show his power and his authority over death and disease. And may we be comforted knowing that God doesn't only help the rich or the poor, the famous or the anonymous, those who come boldly or those who come quietly. God can work in each and every one of our lives in and through our various situations. Listen, if we will, like Jairus and this woman, realize our need to come to Jesus and respond to him with the faith that he's given us, listen, God can and will do amazing things. Things that will cause others to be astonished and overcome with amazement. There is nothing too hard for our God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the account of these two people who came frantically, Lord, who came in desperation, Lord, realizing that in and of themselves, their religion, their own efforts, Lord, they were useless and they needed you. Lord, we recognize that same truth here this morning. Lord, we desperately need you. Lord, we need you to work in our lives. Lord, when fear grips our hearts, Lord, may we cling to your promises. May we come to you and trust in you no matter what. Lord, I pray that we would come and we would come humbly before you, Lord. And that we, both of these individuals, they, they fell before your feet. And they simply worship you, Lord. They, 
to honor you, to glorify you. Lord, I, I believe that's your heart for us as well. That we would simply just come before you humbly. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that's been trying to hide things, like the woman, you know, trying to be discreet, Lord, that they would just come and realize that there's no need to hide. That they can surrender their life to you completely. You desire to do a great work in their heart and life. Lord, I pray for any that are here that feel like they're in Jairus' situation. Maybe they're just in a really tough time right now and fear is gripping their heart. I pray that they would be confident in coming to you. And Lord, that exhortation that you gave to Jairus, only believe. Do not be afraid. Only believe. Keep on believing. Don't give up hope, Lord. May our hope never wane, Lord. May we, our hope remain steadfast in you. Lord, we love you. We thank you. That you work and can work in each and every one of our lives. And Lord, with that assurance, Lord, we, once again afresh this morning, just yield our lives to you. Knowing that you desire to do a work in us and through us. And so, Lord, do that work, we ask and pray. Be glorified in us. Be magnified. Lord, I pray that if there's any that need to respond to your gospel message, that they would do so this morning, that today would be a day that they completely surrender for the first time their life to you. I pray that you'd give them the faith to do so. For those of us who have already expressed that faith, Lord, I pray that we would continue to come before you and continue to develop that relationship you desire to have with us. Again, we love you. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.